0: This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Tony Tripany, CFO of Corning Incorporated, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 466.
1: commercialization, and, and that includes you know, supporting the HR function and hiring the key people, you know, making sure we make the time to you know, really interview and find the right people because that's going to leverage our success. Uh, beyond that, it's making sure we have enough cash in the bank such that we can spend what we need to to support the organization and focus on the right priorities and so We'll be making sure that we are well-capitalized and will continue to be well-capitalized.
0: From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Jeff Farrow, CFO of Global Blood Therapeutics, GBT. Join us as we learn how Jeff ascended into the ranks of biotech finance leaders. We begin after these words from our sponsor. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jeff Farrell, CFO of GBT, which is Global Blood Therapeutics. It's a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company. Jeff, welcome.
1: Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here.
0: As always we 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 have the same opening question but it's always so interesting to learn um the different experiences finance leaders believe help prepare them for a CFO role. What would be those experiences for you Jeff?
1: Yeah, sure. I I probably took a little different path than uh maybe most CFOs. I actually started uh my career thinking about going into medicine and uh so I was going to UC Irvine, studying biology, and, and while there, I uh, was working in a medical school with a couple of very entrepreneurial postdocs, and uh, ultimately, uh and this was several years ago, decades ago, I would say, uh, we were uh, working on something that ultimately ended up being identified as amyloid uh, precursor protein, which is abnormally cleaved by an enzyme and becomes something known as beta-amyloid. and it's one of the proteins that are thought to cause Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, based on our work there, we ultimately ended up licensing the technology from the UC system and, uh, quote-unquote, forming a company called Protease that uh, we kind of naively thought that we, you know, maybe could take public. Uh, but ultimately, I ended up being the business person, you know, in that, in that relationship and working with a, a former finance professor of mine, develop the business plan and the financial projections, uh, we ultimately didn't go public but got acquired by a company called Sibia Neurosciences uh, down in San Diego, and um, really that kind of peened my interest in sort of the business aspects of it. Uh, I ended up going down to Sibia working in the lab for about a year, but really was thinking about what would be my, my next career move, and I looked at how most CFOs you know, got to where they got. and Traditionally, there's been you know, one or two paths, and that seemed to be public accounting. Uh, sometimes it's investment banking, and sometimes it's working up to the, the, uh, the different company. And So I, I looked at the, the public accounting route, and so I guess the real next stage of my development into a CFO was, was working at uh, KPMG, uh, I moved up to the San Francisco area and took a job with KPMG's life science practice there and really focused on, on biotech. In uh, KPMG was a great experience for me. It really you know, taught me how to manage people, uh, really hitting on deliverables and timelines, planning for success, uh, influencing without you know, direct power, uh, and importantly, the importance of mentoring. I had some great mentors at KPMG. Uh, that really sort of advocated for me and helped me along the way. And then from there, I, I you know, was there for about eight years uh, and ultimately left as a senior manager to take a job as a controller for a biotech company and uh, help take them public, uh, which was a great experience. And uh, you know, as biotech is known, it it's really hinges on how the outcome of the milestones happened and Unfortunately, we had a great phase three readout in one of our arms, but ultimately the second arm didn't show clinical significance. And so uh, the company, during 2008, which was a, a rough time in the market, uh, really dropped down to cash value. Uh, we got acquired by a German company called Evotech, and during that time frame, they asked if I'd be willing to go work in Germany them, and they were a multinational company, so I always wanted to do an international rotation, and so that was my opportunity to go over there, do some different things, including industrial relations and uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, but ultimately, I, I wanted to get back to the States, and uh, I had uh, worked with some folks at as the company that uh, ultimately got acquired, that had recommended me for a position at Therapeutics, And uh, I ended up talking to the CEO there, Don Santel, uh, and really sort of connecting you know, with their vision and, and what they were looking for. They had just raised $60 million in private funding. We're looking to go public and uh, get a drug to market in, in something that's uh, called urea cycle disorders. It's a rare uh, disease. Um, And so ended up coming back here to the States as a VP of finance, working for Hyperion. And Don told me, really, ultimately, that the CFO job was mine to lose. Uh, And after about six months, uh, he went to the the board of directors uh, with the proposal that I become the CFO. Uh, He did get some pushback from the board. You know, traditionally, you know, VCs like to have people that have been there, done that, but Don really advocated for me and pushed for me to become CFO, and so I became – CFO ultimately helped uh, the team there uh, go public, uh, ultimately <laughs> get the drug across the finish line, and we became a commercial organization, which really sort of changed the dynamics. Uh, and then uh, uh, became a, uh, a profitable company uh, about a year uh, two years later, we ended up getting acquired by a company called Verizon for uh, about 1.2 billion dollars. Um, but it was a great experience, and you know, having Don be an advocate for me really was sort of transformative for my career. Uh, and then from there, ultimately, uh, once you've kind of been there, done that, uh, it really sort of opens doors for you. So I moved from there to a company called ZS Pharma, which was on the cusp of going commercial. Uh, and about a year into my tenure there, getting them ready for a commercial launch, they ended up getting acquired by uh, AstraZeneca for uh, about 2.7 billion dollars uh, and then uh, ultimately there met Ted Love who's CFO at uh, Gbt uh, really connected with him uh, great leader well regarded within the industry uh, took a look at the clinical data, very compelling data and just felt that that wasn't an opportunity that I could pass up, and so I joined GPT in April of
0: 2016. Wow, wonderful detail there in terms of uh, retracing your steps for us. That's very helpful. Thank you. Now, it's been about 20 years since you uh, first entered the offices of KPMG. I, you know, it's interesting. The Bay Area, we always think about high-tech and, you know, information technology, not always biotech. Can you can you tell me a little bit about uh, that ecosystem there, that biotech community um, in the Bay Area? Is it uh, one of the larger ones in the states, or uh, how do you look at it exactly when you when you think how robust that community is there?
1: Sure. Yeah. No. Bay uh, Area is probably we we go back and forth with the, the Boston area in terms of you know being either the number one or number two cluster. I think actually Boston now has. Has taken the number one slot, but it's a great ecosystem here, and I think really what drives both of those biotech ecosystems is, is the, the plethora of great universities and talent that's located around there, and it just attracts folks uh, in the biotech industry and, and life science industry, and in fact, some of the big pharma that have located it, their headquarters in New Jersey are putting offshoots in these, these clusters such that they can tap into the talent. Um, but what I think drives it beyond just the university, there's a great ecosystem of, of venture capitalists here on Sand Hill Road in uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area that just has easy access to to the people and the scientists here. And then finally, as you as you indicated, there are some you know, great granddaddies of of companies here, uh, including Genentech, Chiron, Gilead that really have helped sort of seed uh, the growth of some of these companies and, and put leaders into new uh, biotech life science companies that uh, you know, maybe are looking for something a little bit entrepreneurial as opposed to working in a large pharma environment.
0: And, you know, similarly, we've had other uh, uh, CFOs tell us about uh, whether it was KPMG or one of the other accounting firms in the Bay Area where they uh, served uh, you know, information technology startups and clients. Um, it seems like you did the same in biotech, and I, I just want to uh, – was that the the experience? You were sort of uh, specialized at uh, KPMG, focused on, on biotech-related uh, companies?
1: It was. It was, and it was interesting. You know, I – you know, Sibia was located down in San Diego, and traditionally the path to get into public accounting is you get right out of college and move into it, and and when I decided to change my career I I really uh wasn't sure, you know, whether I'd be successful in getting into one of these public accounting firms. Uh and you know, San Diego's a smaller market and, and quite frankly, you know, the big six would, at the time were less interested in me. But when I uh came up to the Bay Area where I went to high school and had family, so it was a natural fit for me to look it was a completely different sort of story. Uh the, all the big six were interested in chatting with me because I did have the industry background and could understand the risks uh, involved in in the life science industry and could talk the lingo. So it was uh it really was a targeted effort on my part to stay within the life science industry and um and I was glad that, uh, you know, the Bay Area public accounting firms were willing to chat with me.
0: You know, I, I just one last question just related to having grown up in that ecosystem and have the sort of the, the larger ecosystem of IT beside you. Along the way, you no doubt have connected with quite a few of your peers in the information technology sector. And as you compare notes and as you have discussions, I wonder what what's generally – uh misunderstood by your IT peers <laughs> about biotech what 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 have you realized over time uh, that how different IT finance and IT is versus uh, finance and biotech anything
1: yeah I, I think IT there's a shorter development path to getting to you know, products across the finish line. So I think uh, folks that come from that that environment don't understand the investment and timelines that are required to get drugs across the finish line, which can take, you know, seven to ten years on average. Uh, So, you know, you have to be patient. You know, it's a very capital-intensive experience as well, which is not necessarily the case in in IT. Uh, So I think, Some folks, you know, don't understand how long it does take to get across the the finish line in in biotech, and many companies, you know, never get there. Um, And I also, you know, and this is, you know, obviously coming from a a jaded experience given my my background, but I just think that, you know, the people that are focused in in the life science industry are special individuals in large part. You know, they – you know, are really, you know, focused on, you know, getting these drugs to the market and to the patients. And uh, I think there's a lot of compassion that is shown by people that work in this industry.
0: So let's find out about GBT and what exactly um, its offerings uh, that, that are
1: being developed there are. Sure. So GBT uh, is a company that's focused on uh, hematological orders for unmet needs. Our most advanced product is something called Voxelotor, uh, and it is in phase three uh, testing for sickle cell disease. And sickle cell disease is uh, a terrible disease that impacts primarily African Americans or uh, people of uh, uh, black descent. Uh, and there's about 100,000 patients in the United States, there's about 60,000 in Europe, and there's literally millions in Africa and India. And what happens is these patients have a a genetic disorder in which uh, the hemoglobin molecule, which carries oxygen uh, throughout the body and delivers it from the lungs to the tissues, uh, sickles, and it causes... uh, awful pain. It causes uh, loss of kidney function, uh, loss of liver function. Uh, People have strokes, you know, at the age of six or seven. Uh, Kids that are, you know, in their teens get hip replacements. Generally causes a a 20 to 30 year uh, reduction in lifespan. So what our drug does is basically binds to hemoglobin molecule, changes the conformation just a little bit such that it holds on to oxygen a little more tightly and uh, ultimately prevents the hemoglobin molecule from sickling and causing uh, the events that I just described, uh, including pain uh, and some of the, hopefully, some of the tissue damage. Now, we are in clinical studies to to prove this. Uh, and we are wrapping up uh, some of the studies and we plan on filing a what's called a new drug application here in the second half of this year, which is essentially uh, uh, a package that's pre- submitted to the FDA that they review and make a decision upon whether the package shows uh, enough efficacy and safety that it should be approved and go on to the market. So if that happens... Uh, and the FDA gives us the green light, we could be uh, selling Voxelotor on the market sometime in 2020.
0: That's a uh, certainly a milestone for the company at large. What would your sort of finance milestones be since you joined the company? Uh, how do you look at the world in that respect?
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is going to be a transformative year for us as we move from a clinical development stage to a commercial organization. And, you know, potentially in a year um, so really you know my goals over the next you know year is to help prepare the company uh, get ready for commercial launch and you know that includes sort of the traditional you know making sure the company's well capitalized so that we can have a successful launch uh, but also interacting with other parts of the organization such that we're set up for success and that includes you know, working with the commercial team to make sure we build out the commercial infrastructure appropriately so we can record revenue correctly, uh, working with the legal department and the commercial team to make sure agreements are structured appropriately so revenue recognition uh, can be uh, managed as expected. Uh, And then also working with the clinical team such that we can capture the appropriate clinical costs and accruals. So really this next 12 months is is gearing up and and getting ready for commercial launch, which is
0: some pretty heavy lifting for the team. In building that team uh, in in biotech, I'm curious to understand if there are different skill sets that you might value uh, than other industries, so as you build that team, what are the priority members? <laughs> you know, the people you must have uh, uh, added to the team as it grows. Um, and uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm curious whether it differs from uh, finance leaders in other industries who are looking to add uh, other skills rather than the ones you are in need of.
1: Right. No. It's, it's interesting. You know, I think there's some parallels to the IT world, but there's also some pretty significant differences. I, I What is unusual about biotech, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is that a lot of companies uh, have some key inflection points and milestones, and, and frankly, huge investments are made in biotech early days, but not a lot of drugs ultimately get approved, uh, and also another sort of scenario that happens a lot is you know it's a company with maybe one product that has a lot of potential and Big Pharma sees this and comes in and, and basically acquires it before a launch. So finding people in the biotech industry that have commercial launch experience and building a company from the development stage to commercialization is a challenge. And these people, you know, are very well regarded and, and tough to find. So For me, uh, making sure we've got a successful uh, commercial launch and and making sure the infrastructure is appropriate, finding those people that have uh, that experience is is priority number one. And and fortunately, uh, having come from a couple commercial companies, in my experience, I've been able to tap in some people that I've worked with before uh, that uh, are just rock stars. I've got a great VP of finance that... uh, came over from Hyperion with me, and then I also have a great controller uh, which is another key position that uh work with me both at Hyperion as well as z s pharma so those are are really uh great assets for us so at
0: this uh place and time what are the what are the key metrics that you rely on to reveal uh the companies where you you expect it to be
1: yeah, yeah no i Clearly in our business, uh, cash is king, and you know, we are burning uh, cash as we work out the uh, clinical pathway as well as regulatory pathway, and we don't have revenues coming in. So that is you know, something that we keenly keep an eye on uh, as well as the budget process to make sure you know, where it's in line with our expectations. Uh, and making sure we're able to you know, finance at an appropriate spot, you know, such that we're not in a position of weakness. Um, so that's that's one thing that we look at, uh, or two things, I guess, cash and in the budget. Um, but also at this stage, uh, more globally, we look at uh, hiring. Uh, we've identified some key individuals that we need to hire to be successful. So. Those are something that are are regularly updated by our HR team and we follow closely. Um, And also for us, uh, clinical timelines are very important. Are we hitting uh, what we had planned for in terms of patient enrollment, uh, database lock, uh, ability to file the NDA? So those are some of the other things that we look at.
0: You're, you're a very effective networker clearly it's so important to be and um, you you uh, illustrated for us how it was really uh, invaluable uh, to your career uh, keeping you know making connections and I'm wondering if you participate in conferences annually how do you sort of energize that ego ecosystem i guess is is sort of my question
1: yeah no it's it's absolutely key uh, we we do as you mentioned go to Uh, several key life science conferences. and In fact, we just finished up uh, last week probably the largest, the J.P. Morgan Conference, which is held here in San Francisco. And it really, you know, it's a massive ecosystem. It really doesn't, it's not just inclusive of the J.P. Morgan Conference itself, but there's companies that come in and surround the Union Square area, and, and it's an opportunity to, you know, really meet with your peers meet with investment banks uh, meet with your analysts and then importantly meet with your investors or potential investors and uh, so it's a great opportunity to network with you know just about everybody so we we always go to that and then there's some other key life science conferences that we go to uh, to really you know keep in touch with investors and analysts uh, beyond that though know, I really do follow some of the the trade publications in the in the biotech world there's new daily sort of updates on what's going on on the m a front on the financing front on the business development front so I do I do keep in touch with those type of uh, uh, journalists and um, you know finally you know we do have a lot of uh, conversations with um, investment banks and you know get a sense of what's happening in the financing world, what's happening on the, the business development world. So those are, are sort of our traditional methods of keeping informed. And then of course, you know, I keep an eye on sort of the macro events that, you know, could impact our business, um, you know, be it, you know, the China, China trade issue, the government shutdown, all of those things you know, they have an impact on on our organization.
0: Okay, so uh I wanna <laughs> I want to surprise you by asking the question: When you moved to Germany, did you in any way feel your uh, that ecosystem was going to be put at risk in terms of you sort of being unplugged somewhat? And um, right. I just think it's a question. Uh, you know, I, I think people have to weigh these things before they move abroad whether it's going to be the right move for them at a moment in time. There's many things that need to be weighed. Specifically for you, my question is. Did your ecosystem sort of become less energized for a period?
1: No, it's a great question, and, and it did. Uh, it is a different ecosystem out there in Europe, and they don't really interconnect. And uh, unfortunately, I think that's to the detriment of, of the EU. There's just not the robustness of venture capital and other sort of networking opportunities. And so you know, traditionally – they're undervalued as organizations in terms of sort of uh, market caps and potential valuations. And um, so from a business development opportunity, there can be some great purchasing opportunities. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's difficult for them to raise capital, and it's not something that transfers easily over to the state. So... Uh, it I did for, I was over there for about almost two years. And so I was a little concerned, you know, about being out of the network. Uh, so I was super happy when you know, somebody recommended me from my previous days at Renovas to, to Don and Hyperion, that I was able to get back into that network and uh, really kind of plug back in there.
0: When we come back, we ask Jeff for a finance strategic moment. And by the way, we're sorry if the audio gets a little muffled in parts. Uh, we had a little bit of a phone issue, and uh, Jeff had to jump on his mobile uh, phone uh, t- in order to complete the interview. And uh, so there are little patches, but uh, we hope uh, you'll continue to listen. It certainly he has a lot to share. We'll be back after this message from our sponsor. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, I want to uh, ask you uh, our finance uh, strategic moment question. And I'm sure there have been so many moments uh, that have been providing strategic insight to you over the years. But what we want is, uh, where as a finance leader, your lines of sight in the organization allowed you to see something that others might not have in management. Anything come
1: to mind when I asked for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, yeah, it was. It it really goes back to my days at Hyperion, which was a great ride. We assembled a a great team of superpowers that are very smart, and it was a time where you know, really, not like now, where biotech it's it's relatively easier to raise capital. Um, but back then, it was a tougher time, and raises were, were more, uh, you know, smaller in size. And, and we were sort of blindly, singly focused on getting this drug that we were developing to market. Um, and what I found is once we did get to market and started generating cash and becoming profitable, Everybody was, you know, high-fiving us, patting us on the back, congratulating us, but literally the next week it was like, okay, well, what's next for you guys? You know, it's great that you guys are generating cash. My tech is, is really somewhat different in that it's not necessarily focused on cash flows, near-term cash flows. They're really focused on top-line growth and what's the next sexy science coming out of the company started that process too late and it does take a lot of kissing frogs to find the right one. And ultimately what happened is because we weren't able to find anything that we felt was appropriately valued, uh, we ended up being a target that was fairly easy to pick off and ultimately we did get acquired uh, despite the fact that we wanted to be an independent organization. Uh, we just couldn't find an asset that we felt was was fairly valued following our launch. And so, uh, one of the things that I'm I'm really stressing in my companies now is that you really need to juggle a couple balls here and not just singly minded focus on your your primary pocket, uh primary product, but also you know focus on business development because it does take time to find the right assets and it takes time to develop those assets such that when you do become commercial. Uh, you can quickly point to what's coming down the pipe next.
0: Okay, great, great insight, great uh, segue for us to uh, to enter what we refer to as our mentoring round. What's exciting you about business and finance today?
1: It's interesting. You know, I think you know we still have a, a long way to go when it comes to diversity. But but what I'm pleased about is. There seems to be more of a push that's coming internally from organizations and, and from what I've seen from, from not just GBT, but other companies as well. And in in California, public companies are, are now required to have, if if you're a certain size, uh, at least one woman on the board. And if you're uh, a, above eight board members, you need to have at least two by a certain time frame. Uh, so companies are, are, are putting more focus on, on that. And, you know, the Bay Area tends to be sort of on the cutting edge of of many things. And I think in this case we're we're working to have more diversity in general in the employee base. So it's nice to see that there's efforts and groups that are working to to make that happen. Um, And I think maybe part of what that is being driven by is that, you know, McKinsey came out with something about a year ago uh, showing that companies that had a more diverse workforce – and or, you know really outperformed uh, on a return on investment uh, than companies that didn't have that diversity. So I'm excited about that, and I think that's a great thing to see uh, come out here.
0: So when you stepped into a CFO role for the first time, when you you were the finance leader, you stepped into that office the first day, what's the piece of advice you wish someone had shared
1: I think what I I recommend to people now is your gut is usually right when making hiring decisions. And if something doesn't feel right, don't pull the trigger on on the hire. Uh, I see people take a look at resumes and see people with quote-unquote stellar backgrounds, but for some reason they just don't feel right, be it the culture issues or something just doesn't seem to connect. So I wish somebody had told me, you know, like, rely on your gut a lot. This is something that I think um, is sort of an intuitive thing, and you can't necessarily point to what it is, but your gut usually tells you whether it's going to be a good fit or not. Do
0: you have a personal habit or routine that you believe has contributed to your professional success in
1: some way? You know, I I think um, I discovered it at KPMG that, uh, you know, I, I. I'm not afraid to work hard. You know, I think there's lots of smart people out there, but not everybody's willing to to put in the hours and work hard. And I I think uh, that's served me well. Uh, You know, I kind of geeked out at at KPMG for a while there where, you know, I would, you know, work my typical workday, you know, at a public accounting firm, which is 10 to 12 hours a day. But, you know, then I'd come home and you know, crack open the FASBs as they were known back then to to continue to learn you know about the accounting pronouncements and things like that. So, I was always willing to you know put in the time and work you know harder than maybe some folks you know
0: that would be willing to do. And I think that's that's been helpful. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders?
1: There is. There's a, there a book you know called "Winning Them Over" uh, by Jay Conker. Uh, it discussed. It really discusses the the art of persuasion and how to influence uh, people and readers without manipulation, uh, in particular when you don't have direct power, where you can't sort of dictate uh, what needs to be done. Um, Peter Drucker once said that decisions are made by decision makers, and if you're not a decision maker, you really need to make peace with that. And I found that this book really... Gives you insight in how to influence decision makers and get your point across, and so it's uh, it's a short read. I think it's a couple hundred pages, but uh, very thoughtful.
0: Great choice. Haven't we haven't had that one recommended before? So thank you. That's great. Uh, we're we're up to our final question. In some ways, you might have touched on some of your priorities for the coming 12 months, but we'd love to end with this. <clears throat> if you wouldn't mind repeating some of them and maybe sharing a few more. Looking forward, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months?
1: Yeah, I think the key priority over the next 12 months is to prepare the organization for commercialization, and, and that includes you know, supporting the HR function and hiring the key people, You know, making sure we make the time to you know, really interview and find the right people, because that's going to leverage our success. Uh, Beyond that, it's making sure we have enough cash in the bank such that we can spend what we need to to support the organization and focus on the right priorities. And so we'll be making sure that we are well-capitalized and we'll continue to be well-capitalized. But we're also working very closely with other parts of the organization such that we can support them uh get ready for commercialization
0: jeff farrell thank you for joining us on cfo thought leader
1: thank you hello
0: listeners do us a favor Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.